is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The recent rain may have been welcome as we deal with drought, but don't get used to it. The World Meteorological Organization says La Nina is back for a third straight year. That means we're probably in for another dry winter. We will go in-depth into what to expect and La Nina's impact on Southern California. The U.K. continues to mourn the death of Queen Elizabeth. Her coffin is now at a cathedral in Scotland with plans to return the Queen to England soon. And baby formula. It's still in short supply with some major chains limiting how much parents can buy. The FDA with a new warning about breast implants and cancer. New poll shows just how much people dislike the U.S. health care system. We'll look at why and what can make it better. Ukraine's offensive against Russia showing major progress right now. Ukrainian troops storming through the northeast to take back territory. And U.S. News and World Report dropping the latest college rankings today. There's always criticism over the methods. You know, what do they look at? How do those schools get to the top? So we will look into that. Start with uh, La Nina. Mike Halpert is the uh, deputy director of the Climate Prediction Center at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Mike, thanks for being with us. So first explain very briefly to people what the significance is of having a La Nina event. Well, well, La Nina, um, of course, is a a cooling of the uh, equatorial tropical Pacific Ocean. And and when that occurs um, through various uh, interactions with the atmosphere, it results in in various um, um, teleconnection patterns or patterns of of temperature and precipitation in, in very disparate parts of the globe. So this is the third straight year. Is that common, uncommon? How long do these usually last? Uh, you know, the, the typical length of, of one of these events is somewhere about maybe a year, year and a half. Um, I, I will say that it hasn't really lasted three years yet. I mean, we're, we're basing that on, on, on the forecast that it will persist um, into and, and through this upcoming winter. Um, that would make it the, the three years. And we, we really focus on, on the winter, at least over, over the United States, because that's when the, the impacts are the strongest. So, so, um, but we have seen this. I'm sorry. I, I, the, the other part of the question was, have we seen it before? And the answer is yes. Um, we've seen it twice before um, if we look back over the past 70 years. So what does it mean in practical terms for, say, people here in California? Well, uh, you know, while nothing is, is absolute, certainly, La Nina kind of like tilts the odds towards a, a drier winter. And, and obviously that's quite significant for, for Southern California. Um, you know, you've had a a prolonged drought, really, consistent with what we've seen in terms of La Nina the last couple of winters. Um, but I would say that just because we have La Nina doesn't guarantee that it will be uh, another dry winter. Um, we've certainly seen La Ninas in the past that, that haven't been dry. And, and as folks remember, you know, that the flip side of La Nina is El Nino. And, and certainly, you know, back in the very strong El Nino of 2015-16, um, we didn't see the, the rain. So while that kind of one piece of the puzzle, there are certainly other factors um, that can that can tilt you the other direction. Is there some sort of scenario still where we hope for and maybe get at least a few of these atmospheric river storms up north to give the mountains enough snow where it ends up being like an okay, quote-unquote, year? Uh, you know, that, that's certainly a, a possibility. I mean, you know, again, when, when if, if we, we do issue seasonal-type outlooks for, for rainfall, and while we do favor um, drier than average conditions, um, really across much of uh, pretty much the whole state, um, 
you know, it's not like it's an 80 or 90 percent chance of, of below average. And so, it, again, it's a tilt that way. But, you know, um, and certainly it, it, in a typical winter, I mean, even in a dry winter, you're likely to get a few of the atmospheric rivers. The question is, will you at least get a, a normal number or, or, you know, surprisingly even a, a, an above normal number of those type of events? Okay, so we get dry probably. Who gets wet? Um, you know, the, the, the jet kind of results in dry across um, the southern tier, so, you know, California, southwest, as well as the Gulf Coast. Um, the wet areas are oftentimes up to the north, so the Pacific Northwest, northern Rockies, um, sometimes further into the northern plains, more typical into the Ohio Valley. Um, so it's, it's a, you know, in, in a typical type of a La Nina, we basically just see the rain, uh, above normal rainfall to the north and below normal rainfall to the south across the U.S., Mike Halpert, Deputy Director of the Climate Prediction Center at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Right now, another somber day in the U.K. as the country mourns the death of Queen Elizabeth. With us is Steve Futterman, CBS News correspondent in London. Steve, thanks for being with us. What's the latest? Well, the latest is the Queen now is lying what they call in rest. She's at the very historic St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, and that's where they held the first of what will be a number of public services. This was called a service of thanksgiving and remembrance. She was praised for her 70 years of of being the monarch, uh, praised as a very sensitive, caring, and wise woman as she ruled over this country and the United Kingdom for, for so many decades. And after that, a very moving scene as they opened up St. Giles and are allowing the public to walk past her coffin right now. On top of her coffin, the ancient crown of Scotland. Uh, so she was very, very close to the Scottish people. She spent so much time in Balmoral. That's, of course, where she died. And we've had very moving tributes, even from some people who want to be have, have uh, Scotland become its own nation. There are people, obviously, who have issues with it being part of the United Kingdom. They want it to be separated. But even many of those people still would like her to be part of the monarchy if they become a separate nation. So a bit of conflicted interest there, uh, an awkward situation in many ways. But she seemed to bring people together today. And this will be repeated in London in a few days' time? That's right. Not exactly the same thing. Uh, she will be having her actual funeral service. This was not a funeral service today. That will take place next Monday in London. The body is being returned to London tomorrow night. It will be flown from Edinburgh to London. It will, it will be brought back initially to Buckingham Palace. She will spend one final night at the place that has been her home for so many decades. Then on Wednesday here in London, the body will be transported to Westminster Hall, that's where she will lie in state for four days, a bit more than four days. And they are expecting massive turnouts. They're, they're actually warning people right now that the lines could stretch five miles. There could be waits of 30 hours. We'll see if that comes about. But they're, they're talking and warning people that if they want to see and walk past the body to pay their respects, it may take a lot of, lot of uh, time and effort and uh, 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 a great deal of time to do it. If I'm not mistaken, the last state funeral there was actually Winston Churchill, right? So that was quite, some, right. quite some time ago. What is That's the right. difference between a, a, an official state funeral and, I don't know, when another prime minister dies, for example? There have been many since Winston Churchill. Uh, what's the difference? Well, some of it is just uh, the formalities. Uh, some of it has to be officially approved by the monarchy and the government. Uh, there's a cost involved as well. It, it's in some ways a technicality. I mean, you've had some 
famous prime ministers die. Uh, after Churchill, Sir Harold Wilson, very, very famous and respected prime minister here. He had a very, uh, let's put it, a very elaborate funeral, but it wasn't a state funeral. So some of it's just the semantics of it, but there are some official things that need to be done to make it a state funeral. And basically it's the monarchy and the parliament agreeing to have a state funeral. And obviously they did that with Winston Churchill. Very rarely done here, though. The last state funeral that wasn't Winston Churchill's was the Queen's father in 1952. We hear so much about this, you know, 10 days of national mourning. What does that actually look like? And has it changed over the last few days? I mean, I remember the day after every like electronic billboard on every building had her face on it. Is that still the same that like ads are blanked out and it's just pictures of the queen instead? It has calmed down. It's reverted back a bit. The BBC last night went back to its regular programming last evening. Obviously, they're doing special reports throughout, but uh, until then, it was basically wall to wall with the Queen. So that has changed a bit. It will revert back to that, I'm sure, on Monday, where where it will be all Queen all the time. But uh, it it has lessened a bit. Uh, The ten days, to a large extent, is to allow this four day of days of line in state. That's one of the reasons it's being extended so long. They know that people are going to want to pay their respects. And I will say this. She lived a long life. This is a death that's being mourned, but you're able to celebrate the life. It's not like when Princess Diana died or you have a shocking death of someone that dies at a very young age where people are shocked. I don't find people here in London very sad. They are mournful. They are uh, nostalgic. Yes, they wish she had lived longer, but it's not like a life that was cut short. So there's just a different mood in the mournfulness of the people here compared to what you would have if someone died at a very young age. Steve Futterman there, CBS News correspondent in London. A new poll shows just how much people dislike the American health care system. And the new U.S. News and World Report college rankings are out. And with them are more criticisms of the ranking system. Right now, though, baby formula still in short supply. It's been six months since the Abbott plant shut down Target and Walmart, limiting the amount of formula people can buy at one time. Still going on. Brian Ronholm, director of food policy at Consumer Reports. Brian, thanks for being here. So is it better than it was, but still not back to like before the shutdown territory? That's right. So what we're seeing is kind of a very gradual improvement at what's going on, but it's not enough to get to the point where consumers feel confident in the supply chain or product availability. Um, you hear these reports from FDA that you know sales figures are consistent with pre-pandemic and, and availability is getting up there, but you know tell that to the parents who have a very difficult time still trying to find uh, formula for their babies. And why is it taking this long? A lot of it has to do with trying to ramp up the, per- uh, the, the production at the Sturgis facility. I think one thing we've learned throughout this process is there's this lag in production cycle and that they can't just really push a button and you know, produce formula and have there be you know, set products available at the end of a shift and be able to ship out. Um, and you know, there's a lot of other issues pointing to the reason, too. You have you know, four companies controlling 90% of the market, so when you have one company have to shut down uh, production that certainly impacts the availability of supply in the immediate term. Have others tried to to crack into that market and fight the four, or is it just way too hard when they control almost everything? We certainly have seen some companies try to improve their production facility, and I know a, a couple in particular that have tried to leverage this situation to improve their production uh, process and, and push more product out there to claim more market share. 
and we certainly see that contributing to the gradual improvement of, of the supply. But it certainly is going to take a while before we can get to that point where there's you know, pre-pandemic availability of supply and where consumers can have confidence in, in the amount of supply available. Even before this, though, I mean, it seems like there's plenty of money to be made. There's always babies, right? So why can't anybody get in? Or is it just that these four just control it all? And it's like, there's no way I can, I can compete here. Yeah, that's, that's definitely part of the problem is when you have just such a small stack of companies controlling such a large part of the market, that certainly contributes to a lot of factors in, in the market that we're experiencing today. And yes, part of it is there's, there's a certainly high barrier for companies to enter into this market. And a lot of it is, is based on good intentions and that there's strong safety standards, there's strong nutrition standards that these companies have to meet in order to adequately feed infants. And so you certainly want to maintain those but you also want to work with these companies that really want to get into the market so we can avoid that situation where a small com- small set of companies are controlling the market. Weren't we for a while at least getting some formula from overseas, uh, and is that still happening? Yes, that's still happening, and it's certainly, you know, I don't think anyone's under the illusion that it's going to solve the problem, but it's certainly helping to contribute, and I think what it speaks to is the difficulty that importers have in trying to get infant formula into this market. Um, part of it is their inability to meet certain standards, but also, you know, some of it involves thinly disguised trade measures where, you know, a lot of companies are prevented from shipping product here because, you know, they're, you know, prevented from doing so from these kind of, in certain circumstances, too stringent standards uh, to meet. Brian Ronholm, Director of Food Policy over at Consumer Reports. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The FDA issuing a new warning about cancer and breast implants. It says it's received reports of cancer in the scar tissue that forms around the implants. The FDA says it seems to be rare but does impact all the different types of implants. Dr. Janie Grumley is a surgical breast oncologist at St. John's Cancer Center in Santa Monica. Uh, Doctor, thanks for being with us. So talk to us a little bit more about they're saying it's rare, but what exactly is it doing? So basically um, with breast implants, it is a, a rec- it can be recognized as a foreign body, right? It's not something that's normally in the body. And so some patients in very rare incidences will mount a response to it, which can then spark kind of a, a change that can then put them at risk of a breast implant-related lymphoma. Now, this is not a breast cancer, so this is not somebody who um, has a conventional breast cancer, but it's more of a a reactive um, immune system um, type of cancer that can result as by having kind of a foreign body within the the breast. Now, how rare is rare and how long does it take for this to happen when it does? So it's extremely rare. Um, It is not something that is commonly seen at all. Um, I think if you ask most plastic surgeons, they probably have never really seen this in their lifetime. Um, so it is a very small risk. Um, and as for when, it can happen at any time. Um, and this is why we do tell patients that, you know, implants are really not meant to stay in there forever. Um, and so regular checkups with either your plastic surgeon or, or with a breast surgeon to evaluate Um more common things like scarring around your implant or rupture of your implant is important, but during those visits, they will also be looking for fluid around those implants, which can be a, an early sign or a sign that there is something going on. 
And what's the treatment? Uh, removal. You do need to remove that entire capsule. Um, in some incident, incidences, there may be radiation or chemotherapy, um, like if we were treating a lymphoma, but it depends on how much, how advanced the cancer is. So since they're not meant to be in forever, is it also kind of the longer you have them, the more at risk you are for this type of thing, even though it is, you know, extremely rare? You know, not necessarily the the um, the cancer that they're talking about, but the longer you have an implant in place, you're at higher risk of other things like the rupture or the scarring that can happen um, around the implant. And the other thing that that uh, is interesting, I think, anyway, is that apparently, it, it even though it's rare, we're talking about all kinds of implants. Where a few years ago, I remember there were some issues with certain types of implants, but this is right. regardless of the type, right? Yes, I think they're saying that you know, regardless of the type, your if your body recognizes it and sparks some sort of an immune response or or sparks some sort of change that mutates, um, it can. Um, elicit kind of the start of this cancer. So they're not, um, before, like you said, it used to be mostly just the textured allergan implants that they had noticed. But I think as we look into more cases, we're finding it it can happen with any implant. When we had the problems with with those allergans, has that been repeated in anything? Or once those were taken off the market for the obvious reasons, because they led to all these different kind of, you know, constellation of illnesses, uh, was it kind of smooth sailing from there? Well, I think, you know, once you identify something, you start looking for more things. And I think that's where, you know, we can get more information. That's probably what we're finding now is that as we look further into it, um, we're probably getting more information. I mean, are you already hearing from women who are concerned? Well, I think women, they were concerned when the the first um, warnings came out with the Allergan implants, regardless of what kind of implants they had. I think it is just important for women to understand what they're signing up for when it comes to implants. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about um, that with patients when they come in for breast evaluations, if they are thinking about implants. Um, I do encourage all of them to talk to their plastic surgeons about the risks and benefits of getting breast implants. Um, common things being common, it's the scarring that can happen in the rupture and having to undergo multiple operations to exchange their implants. But it is important to understand that there are breast implant related illnesses um, that some patients can have and experience. And then there are these cancers that, that have been seen to be related to breast implants as well. Very quickly, you mentioned that they're not designed to be there forever. How often are they supposed to be replaced? Well, the older, um, versions of implants, we typically say somewhere in the five to 10 years is kind of the life of that implant. But really nowadays with the newer implants, they can stay in for longer. So what we recommend for most women is to to have regular exams. So we need to kind of see how much it is scarring versus not. Dr. Janie Grumley there, surgical breast oncologist, St. John's Cancer Institute in Santa Monica. Do you know anyone, someone who doesn't have a complaint about the country's healthcare system? It seems like there's always something to complain about, whether it's getting a timely doctor's appointment, dealing with insurance companies, or paying for prescription drugs. We'll see you in three months, right? That's yeah. how it usually goes. A new poll confirms people's unhappiness. AP found fewer than half of Americans say the country's healthcare system is generally handled well. Nearly eight in ten say they're at least moderately concerned about getting access to quality care when they need it. With us is Orange County-based Dr. Dung Trin. He's a medical missionary, co-founder of MD Dow, a new health care organization. 
Doctor, thanks for being here. So not surprising to us reading the poll. Uh, surprising to you, a doctor, or no? Not at all. No surprise there. Why um, do uh, Seeing patients yeah. in the office, we see it all, all the time. <laughs> what are the complaints that you get? We, we listed some of them. Uh, you can't get the prescription drug prices down. You can't get a doctor fast enough. What do you hear that people complain about? Uh, complaint about access, which is not getting to the doctor fast enough. Uh, complaint about insurance issues, uh, wanting to see doctors and they're, they're not covered or approved. Uh, complaints about uh, how much time you have with the doctor, actually. Most, uh, most patients, I think, uh, a survey was done uh, where the average time a patient spends with their primary care physician is about seven minutes, which is uh, quite crazy. And... And the biggest complaint, I think, is that the medical system is designed to to answer the what question. What is your diagnosis? What is the treatment? But not necessarily designed to answer the why question, which is why do I have this disease? Uh, what can I do to prevention, prevent this? And so it's a, not focused as, as much on preventive health and wellness, more focused on disease treatment is what I'm seeing. Well, it, it isn't also, I guess the fundamental problem is when we talk about what's wrong with the medical system in the U.S., what's wrong with it is there really is no medical system in the U.S., is there? I mean, it, it depends on the state. It depends on the municipality you happen to live on. It depends on your socioeconomic group. It depends on whether you happen to be old enough to be on Medicare or not old enough. It depends if you're poor enough to be on Medicaid. I mean, there is no real system. It's all over the place. Absolutely correct. Our healthcare, quote unquote, system is in silos. Silos. So if you belong to Kaiser, you don't go outside of Kaiser. If you belong to Blue Shield or Aetna, you're in that network. And, and so there isn't a system. Uh, treatment is, is taken care of in silos. And not only that, the medications that are approved for you isn't necessarily the same medications that's approved for you if you change your health plan. And, and oftentimes, patients who switch health plans from, let's say, a Kaiser to a Blue Shield or Blue Cross, their medications that they have been on are all of a sudden no longer covered. So, so the system, quote unquote, system is broken. So, uh, what what is a patient to do to actually, I don't know, get some time with the doctor or get some info that's not just one of the brochures that is in the little cart on the wall? They say, here, grab this, take it home, and read it. Like that's not going to cut it for me. So, what do I do? And then, do you find that people always have to be like their own advocate all the time? Because the message is always. Okay, we'll send the doctor the, the, the concern through the, the patient portal, and then you should hear back in 24 hours. Well, then why am I calling every two days to try and get that answer? Yes, so, so I think the solution is going to be stepfold and over a number of years. Uh, what we've done at MDDAO, which is the, the organization that I'm one of the co-founders of, is that we're bringing healthcare onto a virtual platform. Where, where it takes down walls of offices, where it takes down walls of location, geography, and addresses. Uh, because if you can take care of your issues virtually, and by virtual healthcare, we all know what it means now is telemedicine, right? Uh, nobody knew about telemedicine prior to this pandemic. Everybody knows about telemedicine now because we've all experienced it because of the pandemic. 
And if you can bring that type of care virtually and I can take care of you and you're at home getting your care taken care of rather than looking for transportation, taking time off work, driving to my office and then waiting in the office, right? And waiting in the cold exam room. If I can take care of you online through a virtual platform and get that care met virtually, I think that's going to solve a whole bunch of barriers that exist today. But in, but, uh, as a, but, as, but but as a doctor, don't you want to? I mean, I can see cases in emergencies, perhaps where uh, you have a long relationship with the physician. They know you, you know them. They know your issues, and maybe you know you've run out of something, so you talk to them, and they want to make sure you're still actually alive before they renew your prescription. I get that. But don't you otherwise want to be able to, I don't know, feel their pulse, take their blood pressure, see what the pupils of their eyes look like, see what the condition of their skin is, see whether or not they seem anxious when they're sitting there talking to you. There are things that you cannot do through a a computer or TV screen. Absolutely, you are correct. Not every visit is appropriate for, uh, for a virtual visit. Uh, if you're coming in for a physical exam, right, you got to come in for that exam. If you're coming in to get a biopsy done, uh, obviously that needs to get done. So this doesn't replace standard healthcare today, that office visit. This augments it in a way that allows to improve access uh, for you. And so I've spoken to many doctors uh, who have done virtual healthcare, telemedicine, and I've asked them, you know, how many of your telemedicine visits can you appropriately make a diagnosis and and give a treatment plan without seeing that patient in front of you physically and i would say that most of my docs are telling me 75 to 80 percent of the time they're they're able to do that virtually but this doesn't replace a a physical in front conversation with a doctor this augments it so that you can have more access to that doctor without having to drive to that office every time. Are you guys also, like, slammed? We know there's a nurse shortage. Is there a doctor shortage? Because there's a whole lot of us who need care on the outside. We're absolutely slammed, especially in the primary care world. Uh, you know, the one thing COVID did was that uh, was that it made uh, a lot of folks realize uh, the difficulty and the struggles of the healthcare system. And... And there is a shortage of primary care physicians. Uh, we have, what is that? I heard 10,000 patients a day uh, becoming, you know, Medicare eligible, Social Security eligible, right? And there is enough docs coming out of medical school to replace the number of docs that are needed with, uh, with that. So how do we solve that? We bring on a team. It's not a doctor-patient relationship. It's the patient and doctor's team relationship. That team includes nurse practitioners, physician assistants, health coaches, right, case managers and things of that sort to, uh, to be able to take care of that patient and to be able to expand that physician's reach beyond the, uh, the one-on-one interaction is uh, how we're going to address that issue. Dr. Dun Trin, he's a medical missionary, co-founder of MD Dow, a new healthcare organization. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Could we be seeing a turning point in the war in Ukraine? Country says its new offensive against Russia has been successful. Troops have reclaimed a wide area of territory from Russia and pushed the Russian troops all the way back to the northeastern border in some spots. Ukrainian military reporting capturing many Russian soldiers. Russia, though, fired back, launching missiles and rockets in the uh, Kyiv region. With us is retired U.S. Army Major John Spencer. He's the chair of Urban Warfare Warfare Studies at the Madison Policy Forum and author of the book Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, and Social Connections in Modern War. Thanks for being with us. So is this, a, in your view, a turning point, although that phrase has been used, I guess, before, but is this it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's unquestionably a turning point. I I think the only other turning point you could say in this entire war was the complete defeat of Russia back in April, preventing them from taking the capital. Now you've seen, unlike you have in the previous war, Ukraine go on the offense and win. Um, They've taken so much land, it's almost hard to track at this point, but over 3,000 square miles of land, more land than Russia took since since April, since it basically restarted another war in Ukraine, um, the, the the Russian military in the southeast portion, this this part of Ukraine, are collapsing, not withdrawing, like literally running for their lives. So now what do they have to do to keep it going? Because there's the south is still under Russian control, at least at least wide areas of it. Right. Right. No, they're, I mean, they're. The war is far from over, but um, we have a thing in the military called an, a momentum and an initiative. Um, Ukraine is surprised even me, and I watch this every day, um, talking to Ukrainians and, and, and keeping an eye on it. What they've done is surprised the world, but hopefully it kind of quiets some of the dissenters who said, you know, Ukraine could never win. They just need to sue for peace, or we shouldn't be sending them, like in the United States, so much money. But they've shown that they can actually defeat what people thought was the second largest or second most powerful military in the United or you know, in the world. They can Ukraine can defeat them. This little country of Ukraine, because they're better motivated, they they're fighting for a better cause. Okay, but uh, Vladimir Putin is not known to be a person who likes losing. So what does he do? Yeah, so I, I think this has been the question, right? How does Putin save face? Well, uh, with just a little bit of understanding of the Putin regime, Putin doesn't need to save face. He is a totalitarian dictator. He can literally say tomorrow that he won the war in Ukraine and it could be over. But what we're seeing is a fracturing of the Putin regime. You see generals openly dissenting today or yesterday. You see uh, calls for no more Russian forces to be sent to Ukraine. Uh, The Putin regime is not, uh, you know, Basically, it can't survive everything, and that's why he hasn't been able to mobilize the entire country for war in Ukraine, because it's not a a war of survival. So he doesn't need to save face. Do the Russian people eventually figure out how bad it went, though? Or is that just, you know, they take the line that is fed to them on Russian state media? I I think it's a little bit of both, right? You can't hide. I mean, the mothers and the the families of what's estimated to be up to 80,000 either wounded or killed Russians, you can't hide that. So, but to get to a level of where the, the masses, since these aren't 
you know, these aren't soldiers from Moscow or St. Petersburg that's dying. But it's it's almost becoming undeniable even inside of Russia where information is controlled strongly. And that's why you see even um, the Russian or Moscow Times having a, a an opinion of dissent to the war in Ukraine. Is there, though, a possibility that Putin does something drastic? I mean, I don't think so. And this is the part with, like, the general openly saying, hey, Putin, you, you're losing in Ukraine. Is that Putin can't – so the nuclear card, right? So could, would Putin get so frustrated with his his losses, like, as of the last just few days, that he pushes a button and he releases a, even a, a small attack of a nuclear weapon or a chemical, biological – I personally, just as a military analyst, do not think so because one, it would change the calculus of the entire war, and though you know, the people that like us who can't directly intervene because of the kind of the rules-based order, NATO, all the things that that are in place, that would change the total geopolitical situation. And Putin wants to survive as a leader. He, I mean, most most even irrational dictators want to survive and keep their power. How this whole time leading up to this, did everybody think the Russian military was this huge, big, fearsome force when apparently they weren't? Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to be asking that question to include even our, you know, our Congress, um, because some of these were military analysts. But I think one of the, the, the reasons, one of the justifications is just war is the test. So there's there's armies on paper and then there's armies at war. And Russia's army got put to the test and. It what was exposed and couldn't be seen on the surface was just the the rot and decay that was underneath it of the status of the weapons, logistical capabilities, the actual vehicles that could drive, things like that. War exposed that. So I give some of the analysts, it wasn't me, uh, some I give them a little bit of credit on on paper. And in 2014, when Russia you know took parts of the Donbass and Crimea, it, they they still looked powerful. Retired U.S. Army Major John Spencer, Chief of Urban Warfare Studies, Madison Policy Forum. The book, Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, Social Connections in Modern War. The famous U.S. News and World Report rankings are out for best universities and colleges in the country. Princeton, number one overall, Stanford tied for third, and is the highest ranking California school, Caltech, is ninth. UCLA tied with Berkeley for the highest rated public university. While the U.S. News rankings get a lot of attention, they are not without criticisms. Michael Itzkowitz is an analyst for the center-left think tank Third Way, former director of the College Scorecard under President Obama. Thanks for being with us. So, yeah, what what do you think of these? Because every year there's pushback, and even the education secretary is saying, well, you know, they're kind of a joke. It values wealth and reputation, exclusivity, not necessarily any return on investment that you might get for going to said school. Yeah, the secretary of education totally called them a joke, um, which is very interesting and a strong statement from the leader of all education in the United States. These rankings have come out year after year, and they've really just continued to focus on exclusivity and resources rather than accessibility and economic mobility and outcomes. So it doesn't really matter in the U.S. news rankings where students start and where they end up. It's more so reflective of the sorts of you know billion-dollar endowments that certain schools have and not really the outcomes that they produce for students. Okay, so, but parents and students, uh, for better or worse, many of them anyway, clearly use this as a as a guide. So what should they be looking at instead? I mean, the, the whole 
point of these ratings is to make it easy, right? To to say, okay, these are the maybe the ten best places I want to send my applications to. If these are unreliable, how do you decide where you want to go? I would say that this is really for one percent of the population, but it does continue to be popular year after year. We, you know, as a society, like hearing that Harvard is the best or Princeton is the best, but I'm not sure about you guys, but I certainly wasn't applying there uh, for any sort of undergraduate education. I was looking at a state school that serve a a large proportion of students um, and also from different backgrounds. So I would say as a family, you know, really looking at the cost that you're going to pay out of pocket after all grants and scholarships are deducted is really number one. We know that college has become increasingly unaffordable, So it's really important that you look at what you are going to be paying. But then there's also information available on the earnings premium that that students can get at each specific college. And that's through the U.S. Department of Education's college scorecard. And you can even narrow it down to the specific major that you want to focus on at a specific institution. So just from a strict economic perspective, besides, you know, going to an institution, Um, You know, I would look at the cost that you're going to pay out of pocket relative to the earnings boost that you're going to potentially get by attending a specific institution. So in other words, you got to kind of go and and do your own homework with some of this. I mean, I went to I went to UC Davis, uh, go Ags. And the the chancellor there is saying very honestly, he said, look, our favorite list is whichever one we rank the highest in. But then he says, you know what? But if you switch the data sets around and you look at different things, then we're all over the place. So to your point. Pick what is important to you and then try and zero in on that one or or two areas. Yeah. And what I would say is that we know that the number one reason, whether we like it or not, that students are uh, trying to pursue a post-secondary education nowadays is for greater employability um, and a financially secure future. And because you all are in California, that actually comes from a UCLA study. Um, I've started to look at, you know, ROI, return on investment for institutions and where students can get the best bang for their educational buck. But I've also looked at something else and created something called the Economic Mobility Index, which answers a different question than U.S. News. It sort of says, um, you know, instead of focusing on exclusivity and uh, test scores, you know, what's the point of higher education today? Is it to sort of reward those schools year after year that only admit 1% of students Or is it to actually lift this generation up and leave them better than the previous generation? And interestingly enough, you know, California schools uh, do really, really well. And it happens to be all Hispanic serving institutions that actually score in the top 10 when you look at the proportion of lower and moderate income students that a school lets in, but also how well they serve them. What's the earnings boost that they get? So just interestingly, you know, a couple of schools in New York, like CUNY, does really well. We also see a lot of the Cal State campuses. Uh, Cal State Los Angeles is actually number one on the economic mobility list, and Dominguez Hills is number two. So there's a lot of opportunity that institutions are providing students that aren't necessarily reflected in the U.S. news list every single year. Isn't there also, because of these lists, a lot of, of, of big money involved? Because a lot of the schools that get ranked in, say, the top 10, right? Because they're in that top 10, they're going to get flooded with applications and and application money that goes with it from kids who are never, ever going to be admitted. Yeah, and we've valued this, you know, as a society year after year. I mean, there was some article, there was an article that came out today that showed the top five schools, and they all have over like $10 billion within endowments, Um, which is just, you know, crazy. But I think that, you know, as other 
lists of schools, right, whether it be rankings or ratings become more popular, um, you know, we're letting students know that there are just a number of other fantastic options out there in the 99% of schools that they may be interested in and applying to. And if you don't, you know, if you're one of the 99% that maybe applies to one of these schools and gets rejected, we know that these schools only admit about 10% of their student population. There's also a bunch of very affordable, very high outcome schools that exist. Um, so, you know, we are seeing a momentum shift in what students and families value. We also are seeing different promotional things by institutions that are scoring really well on the economic mobility index or other lists that more so primarily value outcomes. Uh, so I hope that we continue to see that year after year, just to let students and families know that there's a lot of options out there that are that can be really, really good. Michael Itzkowitz, analyst for the uh, Think Tank Third Way. I mean, everyone applies to Harvard on the off chance that they like your essay, right? Then you get in because <laughs> your test scores aren't going to cut it or your grades. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's in depth for today.